T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. There's no roadmap for hospitals on the front line of the coronavirus fight. I would say what we're learning is not, that it's not simple at all. In this edition of 880 In-Depth, a deep dive into how one hospital in the epicenter of the coronavirus fight is treating patients with the virus. You know, the joke is like, you know, what day is it? I mean, we don't even know because every day is exactly the same. It's almost like Groundhog Day, the movie, except it's just not funny. I'm Tim Sheld in northern New Jersey, and not far from me in the town of Teaneck, Holy Name Medical Center has been in the thick of it. Holy Name was one of the first hospitals in the New York area to see a large influx of coronavirus patients back in early March, and it hasn't stopped there. Teaneck is one of the hardest-hit communities in one of this state's hardest-hit counties, Bergen. This is the story of how one hospital has managed their care, and it's pretty compelling. Our Peter Haskell got on the phone with Dr. Surridge Sugger. He is chief of infectious disease at Holy Name Medical Center. Here's their conversation. What are things like at the hospital these days? Sure. So, I mean, just a little background. Uh, we are uh, indeed, as has been portrayed in the news, the epicenter of the uh, COVID pandemic that uh, uh, in the tri-state area, New, Jer- New Jersey, New York, and Connecticut, um, after being first identified in Westchester, uh, County uh, very quickly spread to Bergen County, and of course now it's widespread throughout New Jersey. Uh, but we were actually in Bergen County, the first hospital to see the largest influx of cases um, earlier on in March. Um, and since that time, essentially, it's transformed our hospital um, to essentially uh, almost all COVID cases, uh, and transform in terms of how we're dealing with the cases, how we're what we're treating. Our facility, you know, we've, we've literally transformed our facility, uh, I mean the hospital itself, to to better prepare for this pandemic. So we've had, um, you know, I mean, I, I know they sent you the numbers of how many have been hospitalized, over 180, unfortunately over 60 patients have died. And even now we have about 33, uh, or a little bit over, I think 32 or 33 last time I checked on the ventilators. But, you know, prior to all this, we had right around 20 uh, ventilators and I think by the end of this week, thanks to the engineers and the, um, uh, you know, the, the, all the uh, maintenance and facility plant workers, uh, we have over 100 ICU beds. So essentially, they've just transformed the hospital and taken other uh, requisition, other parts of the hospital, um, and transformed them into ICU. So, I mean, to say unprecedented, it might be cliche, but it, it's really the truth. I mean, uh, it's like all hands on deck. And so uh, this is... Uh, unlike anything uh, myself or anyone else, for that matter, has seen in their medical career. 
there had to have been a steep learning curve trying to figure out how to manage all these patients, how do you treat them. Give us a sense from point A to point B. What's changed, what you've learned? Sure. So I would say that, you know, initially a lot of our data uh, was coming from China, which up until the United States reached an eclipse, had the most cases. We know that's no longer the case. So what I would say that this is the first pandemic in the era of social media, so that's both good and bad. And the bad because there's a lot of misinformation being uh, shared around, which is why we appreciate uh, when the, you know, and take time uh, to speak to media because I think it's very important for people to stay informed and stay educated, you know, and, and, and from reliable uh, sources. Um, on the good side, we live, of course, not in the area, just in the area of social media, but information sharing. So the amount of medical and scientific knowledge that's been transferred from country to country and then within our country from state to state and within each state from institution to institution is incredible. And so very early on, the Chinese shared some of the preliminary data. Uh, when, the, when the pandemic first showed up in the United States, it was the West Coast, especially in Washington State. So uh, University of Washington Medical Center was uh, setting up in, uh, their own protocols and sharing it uh, with the rest of the country. And through different professional societies, we were able to gain uh, access to that. And, of course, uh, we developed our own protocols, which we are constantly tweaking uh, daily almost or weekly. If not weekly, then daily. So we started off uh, by utilizing and trying some old medications that have been used for HIV that were thought to have some efficacy against COVID-19. Our own personal experience was that uh, very within a week we realized they weren't doing anything, and then that was confirmed by an article in um, New England Journal of Medicine, or JAMA, I can't remember, maybe it was JAMA, uh, a few weeks later. So that was a drug, Kalitra. And of course, um, there's been much uh, talk about older drugs for malaria like chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine, which is a safer metabolite of chloroquine, uh, which is a trade name Plaquenil. And of course, we've been developing our own uh, protocols with Plaquenil, um, an antibiotic called Zithromax or a ZPAC, commonly known, and zinc that all kind of work synergistically, at least in theory. Um, and then there were some papers from France that maybe supported that. But again, these are all early um, information. And so in medicine, we, we live in an era of evidence-based medicine. Unfortunately, you know, there is no great evidence for any effective treatment. So as doctors we and healthcare providers, we want to offer something to our patients. So we're really taking a lot of very preliminary information and then trying to utilize it uh, daily and then daily assess what, if any, response is there. Um, we were lucky because um, we have a strong clinical research department, especially for, a, you know, we're a large community hospital, but not necessarily an academic hospital, but we're lucky to have a clinical research section uh, that's helped us acquire two clinical trials. So we've been looking at clinical trials of um, a drug called uh, Kevzara, which is a antibody, we call a monoclonal antibody, and we were uh, granted uh, a, a, to be a site for that trial, I think just because of the sheer number of cases we were having early on, as well as for expanded access of a drug called remdesivir, which has also uh, been well publicized in the news. Remdesivir was looked at um, initially in 2014 for Ebola. It had no activity, but they found in 2015 it had some activity against MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which is another type of coronavirus. And that actually had some activity, uh, what we call in vivo, in life, in monkeys, uh, of which, uh, as you may know, or listeners out there may know, that we were very closely genetically um, related to. So we've been utilizing remdesivir initially as compassionate use and now as expanded access. 
and we're trying these monoclonal antibodies to handle these so-called cytokine storms that everyone's talking about. And these are antibodies that are used for things like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. And so we're essentially taking drugs that are approved by the FDA for something else, i.e. lupus, rheumatoid, or malaria, or in this, uh, and then repurposing them, using them off-label for COVID-19. Um, and then we're sharing our experience uh, with our colleagues, let's say within our county, other institutions, uh, looking at for uh, state and national societies, so whether it's the Infectious Disease Society of America or the American Thoracic Society, uh, you know, it's really just in real time, uh, seeing what works, what doesn't, getting the data, um, uh, scouring the uh, literature, uh, talking to our team constantly. So our teams, which are really ER doctors, infectious disease doctors, and pulmonary critical care doctors are the main doctors involved on, on the, on the uh, you can say, front line, so to speak, constantly discussing, engaging, you know, see what works. Uh, we very quickly have learned there's two phases of this disease. There's the viral part where uh, early on when the virus is um, replicating within the body, and that's where maybe some of the antivirals or drugs that have antiviral properties can work. And then there's either patients get better or there's the cytokine storm, which is basically the body's response to the virus. It's kind of like throwing everything in the kitchen sink at the virus. And it's those, it's that kitchen sink, so to speak. It's, it's what the body is doing, the inflammation it's producing that's actually causing damage. And that's where things like steroids or the monoclonal antibodies are coming into play. But I would say, you know, to summarize, it's really something that we're sharing, you know, nationally and locally and globally, but at the same time, I mean, it's, it's not static. Uh, whatever was current, you know, last week is outdated, you know, by today and similarly and so forth uh, going forward. So there's going to be a lot of information retrospectively when this is over, you know, and there'll be studies and there'll be uh, there'll be uh, maybe more stringent guidelines in the future, but for now we can't afford to wait. So we are, uh, you know, it's kind of unprecedented taking so many different uh, um, protocols and so many different theories and trying to constantly tweak them and apply them and help our patients. But, you know, in, a, in an evidence-based world, right now there just isn't great studies or great evidence or uh, uh, to say we should use this versus that, and we can't wait for those. I mean, some people will say, well, you know, do no harm, but I think none of us can sit by uh, um, and, and let patients die without being as aggressive as we can as possible. I want, just want to get back to one of the things you mentioned. We've heard the President sure. and Governor Cuomo talk sure. about this hydroxychloroquine. From what you've seen, there's no evidence that it works, or what, what do you say? No, I would say there's preliminary evidence that it may have some benefit, at, and especially early on in disease. But I think the danger is, I mean, I don't want to get political necessarily, but, you know, I, we're following uh, science is scientifically that we, we, we urge caution that this is not a, a one pill, uh, you know, uh, cure all type of situation. It's not a, you know, a, a definitive cure. It's not a slam dunk. And also, uh, you know, we try to warn people that they're not without side effects. Uh, hydroxychloroquine, while is indeed safe, I mean, it's FDA approved, no drug is without you know, untoward side effect. There's nothing in medicine that's black and white, so there's no medicine, no matter how much is used, that, that cannot have potential side effects. One being um, affecting the, what we call QTC interval, so in terms of, that's the heart. So when given with other medications, like Zithromax, it also is known to prolong the interval. In some susceptible people, it can cause uh, cardiac arrhythmias, which in some cases can be fatal. So, you know, this is not something uh, that we take lightly. 
Plaquenil very rarely, but still significantly can cause uh, problems with the eyes and the retina. So to say, you know, just try it and see what happens, you know, that's not how we operate in medicine. I mean, uh, even with antibiotics, you know, I mean, as an infectious disease doctor, I'm constantly educating people that even the simple antibiotics that people sometimes, quote-unquote, take like water have significant side effects. They have, and sometimes can be fatal. So people have to be aware that anytime they're taking anything, there has to be a risk-benefit uh, uh, um, discussed. Um, and to just say give it to everyone, you know, as if you're giving out candy is, is completely irresponsible. Having said that, there are some early, again, early uh, signs they could have some uh, uh, benefit if given early on, but even the data from France was not by any means what we call a randomized clinical trial. It was not a huge end, which means that we're not talking a huge number of patients. It's hard for us as physicians to make sweeping generalities um, uh, about patients, you know, 40, 50, 60 uh, patients in a trial. Usually you're looking for many thousands, you know, uh, to make definitive, statistically significant um, uh, interpretations. And there's even been some conflicting studies, uh, one in particular from China, that said maybe it didn't really have any effect. I think the overwhelming, um, overwhelming uh, opinion is that it does have enough of an effect, or at least theorized have enough of an effect early on, that it's worth still trying and it's worth uh, taking the risk, again, that risk being the issue of cardiac abnormalities or even um, issues with the eyes. Tell us about the patients who are getting sick, who are testing positive. What are we learning about those people who never have serious symptoms versus those people who get critically ill? Is it as simple as older people with underlying conditions or other other sure. factors? I would say what we're learning is not that it's not simple at all. I think initially... Uh, the information coming from China was that, okay, over the age of, say, 65, with chronic medical conditions like high blood pressure, diabetes, heart disease, lung disease, smokers, COPD, emphysema, we're seeing a much more wide um, uh, spectrum of disease here where some people have no symptoms or asymptomatic, very mild symptoms, moderate and then severe. And I would say, yes, still overall we think those that are most at risk are those that are older with chronic medical conditions uh, and or immunosuppressed, either because of medications, because of cancer or otherwise. But we're all, all of us, you know, I don't mean just me, but all of us uh, are seeing, uh, physicians are seeing cases, severe cases in middle age, you know, we're talking 30, 40, 50 year olds. Um, so we started thinking, why is that, why is that? So one, I would say that most of us are seeing it predominantly in males. I would say probably, you know, my own experience, probably 80% of the severe cases are males. So why is that? You know, there's some theories that estrogen may be protective, that women may have a more uh, robust, what we call innate immune system. Uh, so that more innate immune system, stronger innate immune system may mean they can suppress the virus easier than males. Um, but that's also why it's theorized that women have higher incidence of autoimmune disorders. Men tend to have a more stronger adaptive immune system. So that's the everything in the kitchen sink analogy. So you may paradoxically find males who are like younger and more robust and because they're younger and more robust have a more robust immune system and so it's the response to the virus that adaptive immune response that actually is causing a lot of damage in the lungs uh, when we looked at the experience in china versus here it's much more uh spread out in terms of those that are getting sick some theories in addition to uh male versus female are 
could be genetic. So obviously America is a great melting pot, so we have a much more heterozygote or heterogeneous population as opposed to a homogeneous population in China. So are there genetic um, uh, reasons? Is it based on blood type? That's one thing that's being looked at. Or other genetic factors that cause one person to have a very mild or asymptomatic disease and another person who essentially is almost the same age and maybe same level of fitness without any comorbidities or, co- or chronic illnesses have a much more severe outcome. That's still not clear. Um, we are seeing, again, uh, diabetes, uh, especially uncontrolled diabetes being a factor. We are seeing obesity being a factor. So one thing related to our difference from China is that we know the levels of obesity and what we call metabolic syndrome. So high blood pressure, heart disease, diabetes, prediabetes, much higher, and then obesity much higher in the United States maybe as high as one in three, if not one in four people, with some levels of obesity based on their body mass index versus um, China. So I think obesity may play a factor. Obesity, especially central obesity, which means not only are, is someone overweight, but they have a kind of like a big belly. There's a theory that people who have big bellies have a increased cytokine called interleukin-6, and it's that interleukin-6 that's responsible for the cytokine storm. And then also there seems to be some socioeconomic um, disparities we're seeing Sometimes uh, people that are more vulnerable, that have disparities in healthcare access, uh, getting more sick even at a younger age, is that because they were perhaps, you know, coming in saying they're healthy but really had never seen a doctor in their life um, because of healthcare access issues and really had maybe diabetes or something else that just wasn't being treated? Um, is it because they are unable to socially distance? You know, we tell people social distance, stay at home, et cetera, but that's not always an option for a lot of people. Um, you know, especially if you have a blue-collar job versus a white-collar job, it's easy for someone to say, just tell the commute and assume that someone has a computer or an iPad, internet access. But there's plenty of people who don't have them. They don't have health care, and they don't have, you know, three to six months' worth of savings in their bank account. And if they don't work, they don't eat. So um, we are seeing in some degrees, I know in Chicago, in Detroit and other places, they've had um, some association with lower socioeconomic status and more severe disease. So as you can see, there's a lot of factors at play. I mean, um, China was mainly uh, Wuhan City. It never really went to Beijing or Shanghai. So you had one city in southwest China kind of isolated from everywhere else. So the experience there may not, you know, and maybe in retrospect we should have realized, may not, you know, would not necessarily correlate with our experience because we have, again, a heterogeneous population because now it's spread across the United States, it's all different levels of socioeconomic status. Um, there's going to be a lot more variability, but I would just, you know, preface it or end it by saying that certainly we see it across all ethnicities and religions, you know, so this virus is an equal opportunity uh, 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 havoc of disease, if you will, um, and there's no caste, you know, creed or religion. It, it really is across all, all levels, but these are some things that we're teasing out. And again, these are just observations uh, amongst myself and a lot of my colleagues, both at our institution and other institutions. But retrospectively, as time goes on and more data is collected, then of course they're going to look at patient demographics. They're going to look at what, you know, when they have many tens of thousands of patients and they're going to look at the patient characteristics, then they'll say, hey, is there statistically significant differences? And then they can make um, associations that yes, indeed, males seem to have statistically significantly more disease those that are obese, those are diabetes. Everything I'm telling you is basically observational data. It's not rigorously studied data, but, you know, that's how these things happen in real time. This is unfolding in real time. So, um, you know, every week we're getting more data and more data is being compiled and more studies are being published. Uh, uh, But that's everything, I think, you know, from the ground, so to speak, in the last month as we've been transformed to essentially a 
a COVID uh, hospital or medical center. And now to some questions on all our minds. When will it end? And how will we know it? And why do some people seem to get sicker than others? What are you looking for down the road to, to indicate we've turned the corner? Yeah, sure. That's a good question. That, that's a million-dollar question, so to speak. So I'm looking at a dramatic decrease in uh, cases coming in that are being admitted, a dramatic decrease in the amount of patients that are uh, requiring um, ventilation, so ventilator support that are being intubated, and we're looking at uh, increasing our ability to treat patients um, as an outpatient. And then eventually, when that number drops below a certain level, we call the r not, then we would like to go back from what we're doing now, which is mitigation, which is basically telling everyone to stay home, back to containment, which is containment where you have so few cases that when a case shows up, you can very quickly contact, trace, and say if person A comes in and, you know, let's say a few months from now, since there's not that many cases in the community, you tell that person, stay home. Who did you come in contact with? Oh, you came in contact with six people. So you contact, trace those six people, and then you have them stay at home, and you, now we have better testing so we can rapidly test them. If you're negative, okay, great. If you're positive, you're quarantined. That's what we'd like to see is where the case load drops where we can go back from social mitigation, which is the, what we're doing now, back to a containment phase. So these are really the two phases that, you know, uh, that people should know about. Containment, when you have enough few enough cases that you can just handle each each uh, case and exposure in, uh, independently. But of course, now we have so much community transmission that that's not possible. We're doing mitigation. So we're looking forward to a time where the caseload drops and we can go back to containment. What's happening that we're not hearing about? What, what, who are the people in the hospitals or in the healthcare system who are maybe the unsung heroes here? What should we know about that maybe we don't know about? Oh, sure. So, you know, people always think hospitals, doctors, and nurses. Um, it is incredible amount of people that are required. So, I mean, it's almost like a, um, you know, uh, Oscar uh, uh, award uh, ceremony in terms of who you're thanking. But it, it is the respiratory techs who are helping take care of the vents. It's the anesthesiologists who are oftentimes called to intubate these patients because they're very, you know, they have to be done under special circumstances. Um, it's the nurse practitioners and PAs are helping us very much, oftentimes helping us uh, with calling families and keeping us updated. So you know, we have teams where like the ER doctors and then when on the floor, the ICU doctors, critical care, and the infectious disease doctors are doing patient care. But we have a lot of other people behind the scenes calling families and updating them so we just don't have time to keep, to keep everyone updated as much as we want personally. So normally if I'm taking care of a patient, I would call a family also, but they're behind the scenes doing that. You know, you have... Um, people in the hospital doing so many different things, and not even just clinical work. You have, um, uh, let's say, if there's an IT issue, an uh, information technology issue, you know, you have to fit a room uh, so a patient can communicate with their family, whether it's an iPhone and iPad. You know, they're putting on, donning and doffing, so putting on and put, taking off protective gear and going in the rooms. Uh, you have the uh, engineers and physical plant people who are, you know, constructing new wings in the hospital very rapidly, and it's incredible. You know, their work, it's, it's really, I mean, you're taking like a, we have a whole ICU built in a week, and we call it the shell ICU because it was a space just above the ER that they very rapidly transformed uh, uh, into an ICU, and they're doing now a second area, which used to be a large auditorium, you know, for lectures and teaching and education into another ICU. Uh, they are also retrofitting rooms um, in other parts of the hospital to be negative pressure. So not ICU, but negative pressure is to keep our our uh, employees safe. 
you know, you uh, have to feed, obviously, all the, all the people who are coming to work every day. So you have the cafeteria workers and, and food service uh, people who every day show up, they wear masks, and, you know, this is, it's vital. I mean, you know, you're working all day. You, the only thing I have to look forward to really is, because um, every day kind of blends into the next, is like, you know, when I can take my mask off for 30 minutes and have a cup of coffee and, and you know, sit six feet away from my colleagues and just chat a little bit and unwind before going back back into battle, so to speak, going back to work. So, you know, they're they're invaluable. I mean, so there's so many people. I mean, even, you know, there's such a weight in the ER uh, for rooms that as soon as a patient leaves, let's say, from an ER room, either discharged home or goes admitted to the hospital, that room needs to be used, but it has to be cleaned, obviously, in a in a proper manner so that the next person coming in uh, is, is safe. And so you have the environmental people who are, who are you know, there every day, uh, cleaning the rooms, using uh, UV lights and other advanced modalities to make sure that room is decontaminated before the next patient comes in. Um, so they're the unsung heroes, you know, just as much. I mean, it's really, you know, the dietitians. I mean, all the, all the hospitals full of people besides just doctors and, and nurses, and everyone needs to have, um, needs to have be rec- you know, people need to be aware of that, and, and these people need to be recognized uh, equally. Where are you sure. getting these people from? Are you having healthcare providers from elsewhere come and pitch in? So in New York, especially, there have been an outpouring of, let's say, doctors and nurses who are retired, who have asked to come back, uh, doctors and nurses and respiratory techs and nurse practitioners and physician assistants have even come from other parts of the country uh, who felt compelled to help, you know, in the tri-state area, which obviously has uh, over half the deaths, you know, of all COVID cases in the United States. So they've come in uh, um, from far and wide. You know, we have other doctors who may not be uh, necessarily um, infectious disease, ER, critical care doctors who will volunteer to help, um, you know, uh, take care of these patients, whether it's updating families. Uh, We have our medical uh, internal medicine doctors and hospitalists and cardiologists who are helping to take care of some of the obviously non-COVID issues. So we're dealing so much with just the COVID-specific issues, but we know these patients also have heart disease and diabetes and thyroid issues and, and other issues as well. So, you know, they are stepping up to the plate and helping us uh, um, manage these chronic medical conditions, which also have to be, you know, managed very closely because uh, we can't have just treat the COVID and have someone uh, have uncontrolled uh, blood pressure or their diabetes gets out of control or what have you. Um, so it's really, like I said, an all-hands-on-deck type of situation. At our own institution, uh, you know, we have a, an excellent medical staff, um, and everyone's really helping out any way they can. Uh, but I know in New York uh, and other parts of Tri-State and other institutions, there have been people come from out of state and even out of the region uh, to come and help out. Um, and I would say that, you know, as this continues, the needs for that will likely grow because you're having uh, doctors, nurses, respiratory techs, and, you know, everyone across the board working Essentially every day. I mean, um, you know, even when you're off on a weekend, you're still going in the morning, maybe working till one or two, then you take the afternoon off and you come back. So, you know, the joke is like, you know, what day is it? I mean, we don't even know because every day is exactly the same. It's almost like Groundhog Day, the movie, except it's just not funny. But at some point, you know, there's a lot of, we definitely have seen a lot of mental, um, I won't say mental health issues, but a lot of mental stress amongst all of us as healthcare workers. And, you know, it doesn't behoove any of us to, um, to uh, mentally not do well, so I think uh, there's clearly going to continue to be a need to have reinforcements, if you will, uh, of healthcare workers. Last question about the general public. What should people know? What do you want people to do? And how can they help? I think people should know that 
uh, when and you know if if the if the curve is indeed flattening and continues to stay flattened, it's it's a large part because of what they're doing, which is socially distancing and 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 mitigating and and staying at home. So I think people need to know understand that yes, they may not be on the front lines, but what they're doing is equally as important. That's what's really in the end of the day, we're treating patients, but what's going to stop the spread is the intense social mitigation, you know, and then a lot of the worst-case scenarios in terms of death rates and cases were based on maybe only a 50% of the United States being compliant with that, and we're seeing at least preliminarily for now much higher rates, maybe 80%, 90%, and that's why the models, you know, may, uh, which obviously use certain assumptions, maybe their their numbers were maybe too high initially in terms of the number of cases and deaths, and, you know, it just, I think, of course, I don't want to, be too, say too strong on that, but that weight remains to be seen. But I would say the general public should realize that by staying home, they're doing, uh, you know, a great service for bending the curve, and they have to just remain uh, not not become complacent, but you know, remain have strong resolve to continue to do so. You know, I know it's easy to tell people to stay home, um, uh, but we also understand the socio and economic uh, ramifications of such. But in the end of the day more work and more pain up front will really help us get ahead of this um, until, you know, obviously the goal, which again, over, ultimate goal is, is, is buying time and keeping levels low and keeping uh, illness and death low enough until we get to a more definitive type of treatment, i.e. a vaccine. Talk. thank you so much for your time. I appreciate your patience sure. and your willingness to talk about all of this. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Holy Names Chief of Infectious Disease, Dr. Suraj Sugger, and our Peter Haskell in conversation. Back with another in-depth in the coming days. Stay safe, stay apart, and keep listening. To make sure you don't miss an 880 in-depth, subscribe and find us wherever you get your podcasts. And please, tell a friend. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay plus taxes and fees. Phone fees 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com.